Israel. Go with me, please, to 2 Samuel chapter 19. Well, chapter 18 and verse 33. 2 Samuel 18, verse 33. Then the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said this, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died in your place, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. The next verse, 19 and 1, and Joab was told, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. But the people heard it said that day, the king is grieved for his son. And the people stole back into the city that day as people who are ashamed steal away as they flee in battle. But the king covered his face and the king cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, Today you have disgraced all your servants who today have saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines, in that you love your enemies and you hate your friends. For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants, for today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, then it would have pleased you well. Now therefore, arise, go out, speak comfortably to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, no one will stay with you this night. And that will bring worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. Say these words after me, please. Loving enemies and hating friends. Say it one more time. Loving enemies and hating friends. Be seated, please. Usually when I deal with this section of Scripture, I focus my attention on the personality, the character, and the downfall of Absalom, David's son. And possibly we'll take a glance at Absalom today. But after glancing at Absalom, we want to focus our eyes on David, his father. We want to gaze very intensely at David's reaction to Absalom's attempt to kill him and to take his life. Let me briefly summarize the situation prior to the time of our text for today. You remember that Absalom was one of David's older children. And Absalom had killed his half-brother Ammon after Ammon had raped Absalom's sister. Because of this act, Absalom went into exile and he stayed there for three years. Finally, David, his father, allowed Absalom to come home. And Absalom immediately began to conspire and to plot to take his father David's throne and to kill his father David. Absalom 
was the most handsome person in all of his father's kingdom. His hair was long. His hair was, I don't know if it was wavy or not. It might have been a fro. I don't know. <laughs> but when Absalom got a haircut once a year, the weight of the hair that was cut was about three pounds in weight. Absalom had a beautiful chariot. And whenever Absalom went from one place and to another, 50 men ran in, ran in front of his chariot announcing that he was on the way. What pride. Each day, Absalom would sit by the gate of the palace, stop people on their way to see David. And he would say to them, your cause is right. I agree with you, and if I were the top man, I would give you justice but unfortunately, I'm not. By doing this, Absalom stole the hearts of the people of Israel, and he became more admired than even his father, David. But David loved Absalom very much. He loved Absalom too much. He had to be aware of what Absalom was doing, but because he loved Absalom so much, he allowed Absalom to keep on doing what he was doing. Finally, Absalom brought his plot out into the open, gathered an army of several thousand soldiers, 18,000 soldiers, as a matter of fact. He announced himself king, launched an attack against King David, his father. Josephus indicates that only about 4,000 men came to David's assistance. David had 4,000 men. Absalom had 18,000 men. And David and his household had to get up and flee for their lives. What a sorrowful sight David was. King David, masterful warrior and champion, running for his life. David had left some of his wives and concubines in the palace at Jerusalem. Absalom went into the palace and abused and showed his respect for his father by abusing these women. After doing this, he renewed his pursuit of his father, David. His only desire was to kill David. His only desire was to take David's throne. But David ran for a while. After a while, David stopped running, turned around to face his son and his army. But his final words to his men as they went out to fight Absalom and his army were, deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. Absalom was trying to take David's life. But David said to his soldiers, deal gently with Absalom. And all the people heard David say this. And all of the captains were given this charge, try not to hurt Absalom if you can. But the battle was furious. Thousands of soldiers were killed in the battle. I don't know how long it continued, but finally David's army, because 
David was a strategist. He told his soldiers what to do. He told them how to handle the attack, how to strategize against those that were coming against them so that they could win the battle. And David's army emerged victorious over the army of Absalom. And when Absalom saw that he had been defeated, he began to flee on his horse. He rode his horse under the low-hanging branches of a tree, and his hair became entangled. His head hit the branches, and he was knocked semi-conscious, dazed, and so he hung there by his hair, the very thing he took pride in, hung there by his hair, dazed and unconscious, until David's men came along and saw him hanging from that low-hanging branch. They stood there and watched. But finally, Joab, the commander of David's army, was brought to the place where Absalom was hanging. He asked the men who were standing there, why didn't you kill Absalom? If you had, I would have given you 10 shekels of silver and a leather sash. But the young men stood around saying, we would not have done that if you should give us a thousand shekels of silver. For the king said that none should touch the young man Absalom, that we should deal gently with him, that we should try not to hurt him. We didn't touch him. Joab knew what the king had said. He knew what the king's command had been. But also Joab knew that as long as Absalom lived, there was going to be trouble. There was going to be insurrection. There was going to be confusion. He knew that King David's life would never be safe until Absalom was dead. So Joab, being David's nephew, was Absalom's cousin. But even though he was a cousin, he knew what had to be done. He took three spiked clubs, drove them into Absalom's body, and then had the men who were with him to finish the attack until they were sure that Absalom was dead. Then they buried Absalom without ceremony in a deep pit and went their way. When David heard of the victory of his army, his first concern was the safety of the one who'd been trying to take his life. Rather than asking about his soldiers, rather than asking about Joab, he said, is Absalom all right? Is the one that was trying to kill me okay? The messenger answered, the enemies of my lord the king and all that rise up to do you hurt be as this young man is. David understood that to mean that Absalom was dead. And 1 Samuel 18 and 33 says, the king was much moved. He went up into the chamber over the gate and he wept. As he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would to God I had died for thee. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Rather than comforting those who had risked their lives to save his life, rather than commending them on their great victory, rather than thanking them for what they had done to save his life, David wept, and David mourned for Absalom. And verse 2 
says that the people's victory celebration became a time of mourning and a time of sorrow. The soldiers that were rejoicing in their victory were holding their heads low and they began to silently return to their homes in shame. Their spirits were in despair. But David took no thought of all this. He just kept crying out, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, I wish I had died in your place. If he wanted to die in his place, he should have just let them kill him in the first place. And Absalom would have went on about his business. But David took no thought of all of this. All he thought about was the fact that Absalom was dead. The one who was trying to kill him was dead. Now, all of us can understand the sorrow of a father for a son deceased. But we must also observe that David's attitude was full of faults and it was full of errors of judgment. I said his attitude was faulty and erroneous in judgment. That was a signal for you to say amen. amen. He showed too great a fondness for a son who had abandoned God and who had abandoned man. By his remorse, he quarreled with God's justice and providence. He opposed the just laws of the kingdom over which he ruled. And then he despised God's merciful deliverance. Listen, if you get in trouble and God brings you out, don't you stand around complaining and fretting and worrying. Just praise God for what God has done. Thank him that he brought you out. David gave vent to irrational passion. Absalom was trying to kill him. Then when Absalom got killed instead, David, instead of shouting and thanking God for saving his life, he began to complain, and he spoke unwisely with his lips. Look at your neighbor and say, mm, mm, mm. So Joab was right. How many of you know Joab was right? Come on, tell your neighbor, Joab was right. Joab was right when he said to David, listen, you have shamed this day the faces of all of your servants who this day have saved your life, the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubine. And in this, you love your enemies and you hate your friends. Are you all with me today? Help me up here. I'm trying to preach this message. Come on, tell your neighbor, let's have him out. He's trying to preach this thing. <laughs> you hate your friends, and you love your enemies. And then Joab said, I perceive if all of us had died and Absalom had lived, then you'd be more pleased than you are that we fought to give you the victory and to help you overcome. And that David would love his enemies and hate his friends seems to be a severe charge. But it's not unusual that there are people in the world who love their enemies and hate their friends. Tell your neighbor, there are people in the world who love their enemies and hate their friends. I could talk all day just giving you example after example after example of people who love their enemies and hate their friends. Some of y'all right here in the room 
are guilty of loving your enemies and hating your friends. I'm sure you've heard of people say, you know, I just can't eat that pork. Makes my pressure go up. Then I have to lay off a starches because it excites my diabetic condition. But you know, sometimes I just have to have some of that good bacon. I just got to have some of those biscuits and some of that rice, some of that starch. It, 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 I have a back set and, and it hurts me, but I like it just the same. You're loving your enemies and you're hating your friends. I'm sure you've seen people who are breaking their necks, trying to get somebody's attention who does not care a thing about them and ignore the people who love them and who care for them, want to help them every day. They're loving their enemies and hating their friends. There's the tendency to take friends for granted, to feel that they are obligated to do what they do. And we are prone to forget the common courtesies and social graces that we extend to strangers and we don't extend them to our friends. That means we are prone to love enemies and hate our friends. Even within the family, come on, say that, even in the family, there's this tendency toward negligence, ingratitude, inconsiderateness. Everybody's child is cute except your child. Tell your neighbor that's your child. All the women look good except your wife. You got compliments for everybody but for your own wife. If a woman you don't know comes along, you jump up and give her your seat and open the door for her, and your wife has to make it the best way she can. You love your enemies, and you hate your friends. Then on the other hand, everybody's husband is better than yours. Mm-hmm. Why don't you do like sister so-and-so's husband? You don't do this and you don't do that. When your husband comes home from work, you look like a fugitive from the poorhouse. Look at your neighbor and say, I know he ain't talking about you. Hell confused. Going in all directions and it's 12 noon in the day and you still got your pajamas on. And then if a stranger comes knocking at the door, you say, oh, I look a mess, I look a mess, I look a mess, I got to fix my hair, I got to uh, change, I got to do something quick, quick, quick. You look like that all morning. We love our enemies. We hate our friends. Often we do the least for those who love us most. Lord have mercy. And we do more for folk who never helped us and who sometimes hurt us. You've heard the saying, biting the hand that feeds you. Uh-huh. And you always hurt the one you supposed to be loving. Well, one needs to discover very early in life who your friends are and who your enemies are. Ask your neighbor, neighbor, do you know who your friends are? Do you know who your enemies are? An enemy seeks to injure you. 
An enemy seeks to overthrow you, confound you. An enemy is harmful or even deadly to you. A friend, on the other hand, is one who is interested in you and has goodwill toward you, who has a high affection and a high sense of esteem and respect for you. A friend is the one that would do anything he can to help you. And your safety and your survival is dependent on getting close to your friends and getting far away from your enemies. I wish somebody would help me preach here. <laughs> Hallelujah. This is certainly true on the spiritual level. Certainly true on the moral level. To love your enemies is to foster your own destruction. To love your friends is to live. I'm not talking about the way you love people who hate you or uh, don't hate, don't love you. I'm talking about those things, those forces that hurt you and destroy you. That's your enemy. And those things that help you are your friends. Let me observe right now that the natural man is programmed to love enemies and to hate friends. Tell your neighbor, you are programmed to hate, your, to love your enemies and to hate your friends. The natural man is inclined by nature to be self-destructive. Natural man is like a moth attracted to a flicker of flame that will destroy him. The natural man has often repelled by that which is for his good and for his benefit, even as a child is repelled from vegetables or from some distasteful medicine that will make him well. The medicine is for his healing, but he doesn't want it because he does not like the taste of it. Man first sought to declare his independence from God. And when man sought to be independent from God, he turned inevitably toward sin. And from that time onward, the desire of the disease of sin was first introduced into the bloodstream of humanity. And since it was introduced into our bloodstream, it has infected and dominated our existence ever since then. Sin is an enemy of mankind. I said sin is an enemy of mankind. Sin destroys what is best in man. Man is a moral being. Man is a spiritual being, even as he is a physical being. And this moral aspect of our nature demands that we follow the pathway of good and righteousness. The moral and spiritual aspect of our nature reaches for that which is clean and reaches for that which is best. It reaches for God. And when a man turns his back on God and on righteousness, he is condemned and he is doomed to eternal damnation. Sin is an enemy. Number one, it's an enemy because it puts you in slavery. How many of you know sin puts you in slavery? Hallelujah. The more you sin, the more you sin. And whom you obey, his servants you are, whom you obey. If you're obeying the devil, you are a servant and a slave to the devil and to sin. Sin is an enemy because it destroys and injures human society. Bring sin into the family. It'll break up the family. Bring sin into a church. It hinders the church. Bring sin into the workplace. Things began to be confused 
and discombobulated. Wherever sin is, it plagues and it hurts human society. If you try and follow it far back enough, you'll find that sin is the cause of disruption and pain and misery in the world. Will somebody say amen? amen. Things are topsy-turvy in the world. How many of you know things are in confusion on this earth? We walk in fear every day and every night. But sin is the cause. Sin is an enemy. Tell your neighbor, sin is an enemy. Because it's the weapon that the devil uses to bring destruction. Righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach unto any people. Sin is an enemy because it brings forth death and it brings forth eternal condemnation. The Bible says the soul that sinneth shall die. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Sin is an enemy. It's an enemy because it separates us from God. And this is the most devastating effect of sin. It separates us from God. And God said, without me, you can do nothing. And to choose sin over God is to love error and to hate the truth. It is to love the lower nature and to hate the higher nature. It is to love wickedness and to hate goodness. It is to love the devil and to hate God because sin separates us from God. And the Bible says that we should abstain from fleshly lusts. But the Bible says, and I'm so glad about it, that there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. The Bible lets us know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I don't know what you feel about it, but sin has never done anything for me. Come on, tell your neighbor, sin has never really done anything for me. And God gave his son, Jesus Christ, to love us more than we'd ever been loved before. And Jesus gave his life that we might be forgiven, that we might be delivered, that we might be set free. And one would think that the world would have welcomed Jesus with open arms. He was the friend that loved us. He was the friend that was willing to die for us. But we rejected him. We turned our backs on him. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And the Bible says this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. And so Joab said to David, David, you have not thanked or expressed your gratitude to the soldiers that died for you. You're just worried about your son, and you're crying about Absalom. Listen, if you don't get up from there and get out of here and go out and say thanks to the men that died for you, go and find the men that risked their lives let them know how much you appreciate it. Go and celebrate with them the tremendous victory that they have gained on this day. And so David came to himself, went out and commended the men who had risked their lives to save their lives. I just want to know what have you done for Jesus who gave his life for you. I don't know how you feel about it, 
But you ought to praise him. I said, you ought to praise him. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation, so rich and so free. When David went out and congratulated his men, said, men, you gave your lives to save my life. You risked your life that I might be alive. I just want to thank you. I just want to appreciate you. I just want to praise you, men, because you fought so well. When David did that, the heads began to lift up. They began to smile. They began to celebrate because their sacrifice was appreciated. I don't know how you feel about it, but some folk come into God's house. They don't have a smile on their face. They don't praise God. They don't worship God. But child of God, if you knew what God had done for you, you would praise him and magnify his name. Tell your neighbor, neighbor, God has been so good to you. God has made a way for you. You ought to praise him. Tell your neighbor, neighbor, I don't know about you. I'm going to praise him. Tell your neighbor, I've got to praise him. He's so good, so good, so good. I've been preaching allegorical message for a little while over the past weeks. An allegory is symboling, symbolizing one thing by use of something else. And this text can be an allegory because when you look at it allegorically, you find that David is the symbol of all of us. Tell your neighbor, David is the symbol of all of us. When you look at it allegorically, the soldiers are the symbol of Jesus Christ who loved us and gave his life for us. The soldiers are the ones who rescued us and brought us out of shame and pity and pain. Joab is the symbol of the Holy Ghost that convicts us turns our heart toward Jesus and drives sin out of our lives. Absalom is a representative of sin. And so Absalom, the representative of sin, came into a situation that caused David, the symbol of all of us, to have to flee. And our lives were jeopardized. The soldiers representing Jesus came and saved the life of David just like Jesus came and saved us from our sins, brought us out of our misery. And as the story ends, sin was hanging, condemned, about to be destroyed, but sin still had life. And the Holy Ghost in Joab said, as long as sin lives, sin will destroy. And so Joab, the Holy Ghost, destroyed sin and eradicated sin from the life of the kingdom. And if you allow the Holy Ghost to go to work in your life, the Holy Ghost will drive out sin. The Holy Ghost will turn you around. The Holy Ghost will bless you. You shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Power to do God's will. 
power to walk in God's way. Joab, representing the Holy Ghost, destroyed sin. Jesus, represented by the soldiers, died for us. Joab took sin out of our lives. Jesus died for us, and we ought to praise him. We ought to glorify him. Just like David failed to do it, we ought to do it in the name of Jesus. I don't know about you. I'm going to praise him. I'm going to praise him. I'm going to praise him because he's so good to me. I'm going to praise him. He gave his life for me. Tell your neighbor, neighbor, we ought to praise Jesus. Just like David should have praised the soldiers. Just like he should have thanked the soldiers. We ought to thank Jesus. He brought me out of sinking sand. He changed my life. He set me free. I've got to praise him. Yes. Glory. Glory. But not only should we praise Jesus, not only should we magnify him, Joab did something wonderful representing the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost said, Absalom can't live. Absalom has got to go. Tell your neighbor, Absalom has got to go. Absalom can't live. But it took the Holy Ghost to take charge. It took the Holy Ghost to drive him out. Come on, praise God for the Holy Ghost. Lord, fill me again. Lord, bless me again. Lord, I need the Holy Ghost. I need your power. Come on and praise him. Hallelujah. Raise your hand and say, Lord, I need the Holy Ghost. Come on, praise God for his power. Praise him for his anointing. Praise him. When the Holy Ghost comes in, you're an overcomer. When the Holy Ghost comes in, you've got power. When the Holy Ghost comes in, the devil is defeated. When the Holy Ghost comes in, the enemy has got to run. When the Holy Ghost comes in, you go higher than you've ever gone before. Come on, clap your hands. Praise the Lord. When the Holy Ghost shows up, 